Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. This morning is from Proverbs chapter 20, verse 21. An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. The Hebrew on this verse reads a little differently, and my own translation would go something like this A possession acquired by greed in the beginning, in the end, will not be blessed. This proverb teaches an important truth about money and possessions. There is a kind of wealth that can be gained hastily. Greedy persons can acquire their desire, but it won't make them happy. God ordains all things. He created the world and the rules by which the world runs. Those who wish to sidestep wisdom and take shortcuts are always setting themselves up for a fall. There are many ways in which this proverb plays out in reality. Those who attain riches quickly don't understand the rules of how wealth works. They think that mere possession of money is wealth. And this is incorrect incorrect because money is a tool. Wealth needs to be put to work. It needs to be invested. If it is used or spent unwisely, it quickly slips through the fingers. Many winners of large lottery jackpots find themselves broke after a few short years. Another danger for those who achieve wealth by greed, even if they manage to maintain it, is that they can become misers. We studied this in Ecclesiastes. These fools find themselves inundated with wealth and money, but one day they look up and find that they're alone, and everybody hates them. Their greed has driven a wedge between themselves and community. Even if they have all the fancy cars and the fancy houses and the fair-weather friends that money can buy, they don't have a true companion. Another obvious example is those who attempt to get away with crime. They may get caught and pay the penalty, but they will definitely find themselves always looking over their shoulder and worrying that they might get caught. And this is not a very blessed way to live. All of these examples are connected by one fact. Those who pursue wealth dishonestly outside of God's blessing or wisdom are destined to suffer God's curse. This isn't to say that our God is stingy. On the contrary, he loves to bless his people. He just expects us to pursue his blessing his way. For wealth, that means with integrity, diligence, hard work, patience, generosity, excellence, and wisdom. The world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Therefore, look to him for the increase in his good time. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins.
persecution of the saints and the proclamation of the gospel. Last week we studied the trial and death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. His address ended in a compelling accusation against the nation of the Jews and their leaders, accusing them of murdering the prophets, the Messiah, and rejecting the gospel and the works of God. He said, You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When Stephen was done, they couldn't handle it anymore. So they stopped their ears and started throwing rocks. It is at this juncture that we were introduced to Saul, a young man who watched over the clothing of the false witnesses as they threw rocks at Stephen. But our text last week ended with Stephen's glorious prayer that God would not hold his enemies accountable for his murder. Our text this week jumps right back to talking about Saul. Acts 8 verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. If you remember back before Stephen's trial, Stephen disputed with the synagogue of the freedmen from Alexandria, Serene, Cilicia, and Asia, and Saul was from Tarsus, which is the capital of Cilicia. Saul was a loyal man. He was motivated, zealous, and smart. He was a Pharisee, and he felt compelled to defend his beliefs and the doctrines of his synagogue. But he was a sore loser. When Stephen confounded his mentors and laid a charge against the Sanhedrin, Saul was one of his chief enemies. He consented to his death, he agreed with it, and his action and his reaction to Stephen's witness was that he sought to destroy the church, to destroy the message of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get more on that in a little bit. But the obvious irony here is that we all know that Saul and see, that, that Saul later becomes the Apostle Paul. But there's a unique connection between Saul and Stephen. And we can see that taking place in these verses. They're both the epitome of their confessions. They're both, they're both at the top of, of what their beliefs stand for. Stephen is an ordained deacon. But he's well-trained and wise. He's gifted with the Holy Spirit and power. He does miracles. And he's able to confound the greatest debaters of his age with the wisdom of God. Saul was high in the ranks of Judaism. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. A Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin, trained at the feet of Gamaliel and full of zeal for the law and the traditions of, Ju of Judaism. In these verses, the text bounces back and forth between these two characters, highlighting their relationship. We start with Stephen's witness and the performance of miracles in Jerusalem. Then we see Saul's compatriots and their inability to answer him, and their subsequent false accusations against Stephen. Then we see Stephen's address to the Sanhedrin and his stoning. And then we have Saul at the, at the witness, as a witness, holding the clothing of the uh, witnesses. Then we have Stephen's prayer 
for, the, for his murderers, for their forgiveness. And then we have Saul's consenting to Stephen's death. Next we'll read how Stephen is honored by devout men in his burial. And then we'll read how Saul starts persecuting the church. Stephen and Saul, are, the text is going back and forth and back and forth between them. In this narrative, we're given a very distinct picture about the difference between the Christian way and the way of man. In Christ, Stephen's face glows. He performs wonders and signs. He interprets the flow of history. He understands the message of the scriptures. He sees the fulfillment of the scriptures. And he convicts others of the truth of what he speaks. Moreover, he stands firm for the truth, even to death. And at the same time, just like his Lord, he prays for those who are persecuting him. And at the same time, we see Saul, frustrated, angry, consenting to murder, and driven to persecute Jesus and his church. Now, obviously, none of this paints Saul in a very favorable light. And Luke, who's written this book, is very intentional in this. In fact, Saul's probably telling Luke to include it in there. Remember that Luke and Paul were traveling companions later on when Paul, and when Paul went on his, on his missionary journeys. Ultimately, in the weeks to come, we'll also see how Saul and Stephen are also connected in that Saul takes up Stephen's mantle as the epitome of the church. In faith, both Saul and Stephen are big picture guys. They get the gospel and its implications. When the Lord takes Stephen into glory, he's grooming Saul to take up his calling, to be his replacement. And Saul will bring the gospel out to the Gentiles. And Saul will bring down the axe on those who want to Judaize the church. But here, Luke is laying the groundwork for that story. He's proving that Saul knows what he's talking about when it comes to Judaism. Because he is the chief proponent of Judaism. He's the greatest enemy of the church. Continuing on in chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Here we see the persecution and the scattering of the church, resulting from Stephen's death and his inciting of the Sanhedrin against the church. This is a hinge in the book of Acts. At the beginning of the book of Acts, just before the ascension, when Jesus was talking with his disciples, the last words that Jesus said to his, his people, what he said was, You will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So far in the book of Acts, we've been studying about the power of the Holy Spirit the astronomical growth of the church and the beginnings of opposition to the church and the gospel, but it's all happening in Jerusalem. It is not until here, at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, that the Jews finally 
categorically reject Jesus as their Messiah. But the glory of the gospel is that it travels well. And we're going to get into that in a little bit also. For now, notice that the Jerusalem church was persecuted and its members were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. By the Spirit, the apostles must have known and determined that God intended to keep them in Jerusalem. They were called to be a steadfast witness to the Jews, to the nation, right there in the capital. It may be that it was just the Hellenistic portion of the church that was targeted by this persecution. Because Stephen, he was uh, from that portion of the church. But this is what we know, that that the church was persecuted and the gospel, or the the church was persecuted and the, the fleeing Christians went into Judea and Samaria. The persecution started to drive the church out of Jerusalem, and the rest of the book of Acts the, the, the gospel is outward flowing. It's outward and driven. And this is the hinge. Up to this point, it's been Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's going to the temple, going to the Sanhedrin. And now, when they murder Stephen, it goes out. But while this persecution was going on, devout men still honored Stephen, despite his condemnation by the Sanhedrin. Verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial. And made great lamentation over him. Stephen's death was a great loss. He was a mighty man. He was faithful. The text says he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. The church was right to mourn him. And great lamentation was made. And again, there's a just juxtaposition there between Stephen, who the church mourns, and Saul. Verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now we see Saul in his relationship with the church. Before we compared Saul and Stephen, now let's see what Saul does to the church. He's taken his hatred of Stephen to the next level. Now, because Saul became Paul, the apostle, who was a close associate with Luke, who wrote this book, and... Paul himself wrote large portions of the New Testament. We have a lot of information about this period of Paul's life straight from the horse's mouth, if you will. Saul found it useful to give his testimony several times. And so here's a quick sampling of that. But before we get into that, here's a quick aside. I don't mean to be confusing by jumping back and forth between saying Saul and Paul. Uh, They're both the same man. And the distinction is not that Saul was pre-conversion and Paul was post-conversion. Saul is the Hebrew name, and Paul is the Greek name. And the reason we call the apostle Paul is because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, who were Greek. They were Hellenic, and the language was Greek. And so he was known as Paul in his ministry, because he was the apostle to the Jews. But he could still be called Saul or Paul, that wasn't... That wasn't the distinction. But let's, let's get back to both Saul and Paul's testimony. In Acts 22, verse 4, Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. In chapter 29, verses 10 and 11, he says, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, 
having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, You have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, Paul writes, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, Paul writes, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So Saul made havoc of the church. He was the face of the persecution which drove the church out of Jerusalem. He was murderous and cold. He forced believers to blaspheme. He voted to kill them. And he was filled with hatred. But the worst that man can dish out cannot stop God. Remember Gamaliel's advice. When the apostles were before the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel says, Leave them alone. If this is of men, it will fall away. But if this is of God, you cannot stop it. The worst that Saul can do cannot stop God. In fact, the result of the persecution in Jerusalem was that the gospel goes out. It had the opposite effect of what Paul was trying to do. Verse 4. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told us that he came to set fire to the world. And that he was impatient that it would be kindled, but he had to die first. This is before his crucifixion. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says... I've come to set fire to the world, and I can't wait for that to happen, but I have to go through this trial first. But in Acts, at Pentecost, that fire was kindled. Tongues of flame on the apostles' heads. And here, all the vehemence of Saul and the Jews is only the fanning of the flames. The church has already grown to multitudes in Jerusalem. But now it goes out. The gospel travels well. And if Saul is the face of the persecution, then Philip is the face of the gospel. Verses 5 through 8. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. First, notice that Jesus' predictions at the beginning of Acts are being fulfilled. Jesus said that you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, check, and in all Judea, check, and Samaria, check, and to the end of the earth. 
And that's what we're going to be getting to in the rest of the book. Here we see Philip in Samaria. And he has remarkable success. The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. And there was great joy in that city. Now would be a good time to give a little data on Samaria in the first century. Samaria was a province. It was located smack dab in the middle of Palestine. It was north of Judea and south of Galilee. It, it went from the Jordan River all the way over to the Mediterranean. The capital city was also called Samaria and was located in the middle of the province. The reason that Philip goes down to Samaria, even though he's traveling north, is because Samaria is on the plain and Jerusalem is in the hill country. The Samaritans were despised by Jews because their heritage was mixed from foreigners who had been placed in the promised land after the northern kingdom, Israelites had been ex exiled by the Assyrians. So there, when, when, when Israel split into two kingdoms, north and south, in, in the Old Testament, the northern kingdom came into judgment first. And so in 722 BC, they were conquered and they were sent off into exile. And the Assyrians took all strangers from all the various foreign lands and they shipped them back to live there and they took the Israelites away from there. And then there were a few straggling Jews that were left in the land and, and uh, the Samaritans were the offspring of the intermixing of all those groups. Their faith was also a hybrid of Judaism and high place worship. Because it's very interesting to know, you can read about it in, 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 in the Old Testament, in the, in the books of Kings, the, uh, when the Assyrians took the Israelites all out of Israel and put in all the foreigners, God sent judgment on the foreigners. He had lions attacking them. And, and the foreigners complained to the Assyrians and said, we need to learn how to worship the God of this land because the lions are killing us. And so the Assyrians sent some priests back to teach them how to worship the true God to prevent the lions from destroying them. Well, that happened, but the Assyrian, the, the, the Samaritans, the people who were left behind, they muddied the worship of the true God. They, they wanted to add the true God, the, Jew, the Jewish God, to their pantheon of gods. So they continued to worship on the high places and serve the false gods, but they added to it lots and lots of, of Judaism. So their faith was a hybrid of Judaism and high place worship. They were circumcised, but they didn't worship in Jerusalem. They worshiped at Mount Gerizim. However, like the Jews, they also looked for a Messiah. Like we see when the Samaritan woman at the well tells Jesus that the Messiah will answer the questions about the right place to worship. Of course, Jesus tells her, I, I am he. He says, I am the Messiah. And the time is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And, and this, Philip is, is bringing the gospel. He's bringing the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah. And Philip's ministry to Samaria would have seemed like a slap in the face to the Jews of Jerusalem. Samaritans were despised, hated. 
the Jews wanted a Messiah. They wanted God to save them. But what they wanted was God to save them according to their terms. They wanted a new Israel, not a church. They wanted a new nation of Israel where they had hegemony over the rest of the world, like the Romans. They just wanted to trade places with the Romans. They didn't want Jesus to be king for everybody and, and Messiah and Savior for everybody. They wanted to hold on to them being the special people, the, the only saved ones. They liked the idea of that. They wanted everybody to have to submit to the temple and the temple rules. But Jesus' good news gloriously breaks down the traditional barriers between Jews and non-Jews. The promised Messiah is a savior for all peoples. The gospel given to Abraham is all the nations of the earth will be blessed in your seed. Not just the nation of Israel. And here we see that the ministries of both Stephen and Philip recognize God as supreme and working in very new and powerful ways. Ways that we shall see the apostles don't even yet fully realize. But we're not there yet. The fire that I mentioned a bit ago is because in Christ, God has taken the gloves off. In his ministry to the world, God is not pulling any punches anymore. Before men had to work through the mediation of priests and the temple, now God was working directly through his ambassadors by his Holy Spirit. He's working directly through the apostles, directly through the seven, the anointed deacons, and directly through every Christian, because we don't need a mediator anymore. God was working by his Holy Spirit. And when you scatter Christians, you can't cut the head off of the snake. That's, that was the thinking of the, of the Jews. They were thinking, if we can attack the leaders, then we can stop this thing. But that's not the way it works, because God's working with every one of us individually. He's in our hearts. And when we go out, we bring him with us. He doesn't leave us. We can't be separated from him. The blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. Persecution has the effect of spreading the gospel, not quelling it. And a primary reason for this is because Christians don't fear. We shouldn't fear. Christians don't fear death. Death just brings us to God. Look at Stephen. That's, that's what you get when you kill a Christian. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. And he's proclaiming, he's witnessing it to the multitudes there who are attacking him. He said, look, I see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God in glory. Ah, throw rocks. They can't handle this. That, Stephen doesn't fear death. He's going to be with his Lord. Christians don't fear persecution and suffering. Because, viewed correctly... Persecution and suffering are an opportunity to repay our Lord for his supreme sacrifices. Remember, when the apostles were beaten and told not to preach in this name anymore, their reaction was very different than what the Jews would have expected. Instead of, ouch, I'm not going to do that again, they got, yay! 
We were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. If God is for us, which in faith we can acknowledge, if God is in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit, we can take all comers. Nothing to fear. And this is a death now for every attempt at the destruction of the church. Saul tries to kill it. The fire spreads. Next thing you know, he's going to have to take his show on the road. And more on that in a few weeks. But here we see the comparison of Samaria and Jerusalem. This follows the same lines of the difference between Saul and Stephen. Like Saul, Jerusalem rejects her Lord. And like Stephen, Samaria embraces him. Jerusalem is filled with murder and anger and rage. But there is great joy in Samaria. Jerusalem stones Stephen. Samaria honors Philip. Jerusalem sends away those who are doing miracles, casting out demons, and proclaiming the great glory of the fulfillment of the scriptures and the coming of the Messiah. Samaria welcomes them and joins them by the multitudes. There's revelation for us in this. We live in the same world that these marvelous events took place. Our God is the same God who did these things. And there's always a choice for us to make. Are we going to be like Stephen or Saul? The two epitomes. Those are your choices. Are you going to be like Stephen or Saul? Are we willing to die for the truth in love? Or are we going to demand our due and rage against God? Are we going to be like Jerusalem or Samaria? Are we going to create our own expectations of what God has to do and how he has to work and then demand that everybody else submit to what our conclusions are? Or are we going to accept the free grace and life that he brings on his terms? Are we going to follow Jesus or not? Obviously, this is the most basic question. But it's important, because everything hangs in the balance. Our ultimate destiny, our satisfaction, our fulfillment, and peace in life, and the quality of our lives. If we want power and glory, honor and blessing, all of which Jesus offers, we must submit to him on his terms, in his way, interpret his world by his word, and proclaim his gospel in his spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We have struggles, and we may even suffer persecution. 
But the message of God for our world is grace, life, and peace with Him in His Son, Jesus. At this table, God graciously feeds us on Jesus. He applies His Word to our flesh in this food and drink. By faith, Jesus is our portion and sustenance, so that as God decrees His peace with us, in our participation in Jesus' death and resurrection, we are filled with Jesus' Spirit. Not so that we can be misers with it, but so that we can be generous, like Jesus. So that we can invest Him in our world. So that we can go out and be His body, doing His works in our world. That Jesus can continue to fan the flame and spread his truth and righteousness to the ends of the earth in our hands and feet and out of our mouths to the glory of god the father forever and ever amen thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of christ church of livingston county if you would like further information about anything in these messages the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.